Good morning. I'm a little thrown off with the mirror. I feel like there's a thousand people in here. <laughs> I don't know if you have that problem or not. It's, uh, it's a real pr- privilege to be here and an honor. Um, Judy and I have admired um, Pastor Wood and his ministry and his ministry to us back in Philadelphia. And also, um, we followed along his marriage to Hui Ping, and I think they're a perfect match for each other. Well, let's, uh, let's begin. Imagine what it would be like if you were a modern-day Messianic Jew living in Tel Aviv, Israel. And God spoke to you one night in a dream. And in that dream, in that vision, he asked you to go to the people of Mosul in Iraq. And in the dream, God says, go to the great people of Iraq and preach against them. Because their wickedness has come up before me. In your dream, you see a man crying on his knees, begging God to save him from his sins and to deliver him from the infidels. And as you look more closely, you realize that the man is the actual leader of ISIS. A group that has vowed to the complete annihilation of Israel. What would you do? Would you go? Would you argue with God? That's pretty much the position that Jonah found himself in 2,700 years ago. But I'll get to that in a bit. First, if you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 60, and we will read verses 1 to 7. If I could read backwards, I could almost read it on on the mirror. (laughs) Hear the word of God. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I do pray that you would answer Pastor Wood's prayer today, that we would, you would open our eyes to see your love and your glory and your majesty. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You know, I love this passage for many reasons, but look at verse 6. Here Isaiah mentions Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedar, and Nebaioth. So who are these people? Are they significant? Do they have any meaning for us today? Well, according to the Old Testament genealogies that you find in uh, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, Midian is the son of Abraham by his wife Keturah, whom he wed after the death of Sarah. Midian is the progenitor of the tribe of the Midianites. Their descendants were found in the desert in the northern Arabian Peninsula, the land to which Moses went when he fled from Pharaoh. Ephah is a son of Midian. Sheba is recorded as a son of Jokshan, who was the son of Abraham, also by Keturah. At the time of Isaiah, Sheba was a nation in southern Arabia, now known as Yemen. Kedar is the second-born son of Ishmael, the son of Abraham by Hagar, while Nebaioth is the first-born son of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. In the Old Testament, when Kedar is mentioned, it usually refers to Arabs. People descended from Nebaioth are called the Nabataeans, with their capital at Petra, which is now modern-day Jordan. Who are these people? They're all descendants of Abraham, the ancestors of modern-day Arabs. Today, Arabs themselves trace their genealogy back to Abraham through Ishmael. Now, what did God say to Abraham about his son Ishmael? When God came to Abraham telling him that Sarah would have a son, Abraham said, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and he will greatly increase his, and I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be a father of 12 tribes. 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. God has kept his promise, hasn't he? He answered Abraham's prayer. God, in his providence, has blessed the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael, with most of the world's oil, which most of the world needs. Now, we are pretty self-sufficient now in oil but the rest of the world is desperate to get that oil. Now let's go back to chapter 60 of Isaiah. What does God, through the prophet Isaiah, say about Arabs? They will be accepted... Well, this is the NIV. 
They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, who had the right to go into the temple? What is God's temple anyway? It's the body of Christ, isn't it? The church. It's you. <laughs> it's me. That's who the body of Christ is. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2.21, In whom that is in Christ, the whole structure, that is the body of Christ, being joined together grows as a holy temple in the Lord. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to teach us what the church is. And God, according to Isaiah, will adorn his church with Arabs. I didn't say that, by the way. This is the word of God. Today, Abraham's direct descendants, whether Jews through Isaac or Arabs through Ishmael, are now coming to Christ. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 30 years than in the entire history of Islam. You might even say that for Jews as well. I'm not sure about that. You know, we live in a very exciting age. I mean, things are kind of crazy going on, especially politically. But not only is God beginning to engraft Jews back into his vine, but also Arabs. And you know, Jesus will not return until the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled. Count on it. And one more reminder of God's love for Arabs is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. On the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were declaring the mighty wonders of God in other languages, one of those languages was Arabic. 1,000 years before English was even a language. God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham by allowing Arabic-speaking Jews and others, I'm sure, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. Therefore, you could say that I speak in tongues because I speak Arabic. Is that okay? That's good. Sorry. Just want to make sure. Now, if you go back in time, 150 years before Isaiah... To the prophet Jonah, Jonah comes right after Obadiah and right before Micah in the Old Testament. We all know the story very well, don't we? But I'd like to give you a little short history and geography lesson if I can. Where is Nineveh? Nineveh today, the ruins of Nineveh, are found in northern Iraq across the Tigris River from Mosul. Before ISIS conquered Mosul, it was called the Pearl of the North. Mosul was Iraq's third largest city. According to the World Vision, modern-day Nineveh, that is Mosul, was one of Iraq's most ethnically and religiously diverse cities. Arabs who are Muslims, Armenians who are Christians, Kurds who are both, Syriac people who are Christians, Turkmens who are Muslims, all called Mosul home. Mosul was also where Saddam Hussein's sons, Uday and Husay, or Kusai, were killed during a six-hour siege in July of 2004. Today, we live in very trying times. It seems that the world is turning upside down. There's globalization, 
which some people say are making the rich nations richer and the poorer countries poorer. Culturally, we now live in what philosophers call a postmodern age or postmodern world where, we know, where people no longer believe that mankind or womankind or us or anybody can solve our problems. The problems are too big to be solved. At the beginning of the 20th century, in contrast, man was very optimistic that he could solve all his problems. And then World War, II, World War I happened. Bam, that changed everything. But going into the 21st century, most people, and I think especially young people, are very pessimistic about the world. And then there's September the 11th, the defining moment for the new generation. Just like the assassination of John F. Kennedy was a uh, defining moment for my generation, and Pearl Harbor was a defining moment for my parents' generation. One British commentator said this, we are now embarking on World War Four. World War III, he said, was the Cold War between the United States and Russia, or you know, the Soviet Union, excuse me, and the West. This new war is being called the War on Terror. My Muslim friends call it the New Crusades. It's hard for us as Christians to think biblically and clearly about the Muslim world. Sometimes Christian literature portrays Islam by negative images, stories of persecution and harassment, rhetoric, and fear bordering on panic. This type of literature portrays Islam as an enemy that must be conquered. The last antichrist to be vanquished before Christ can return and language is filled with militant rhetoric and banner waving. In this approach, prayer, even prayer, becomes a strategic weapon. And Islam is vilified and conversion is simply a strategy in which to conquer. The effect of this is the same as the church's propaganda in the Middle Ages. According to Christine, this all is from a paragraph from Christine Baluhi's book, uh, Waging Peace on Islam. Martin Goldsmith, a Jew and a one-time Christian missionary to Muslims and a professor of missions at All Nations College in London, told a conference on Muslim evangelism that I attended that he couldn't stand the spiritual warfare terminology of the, of, that evangelical Christians use in their songs. You know why? Because he lived through the Holocaust. Jews and Muslims are afraid. Listen to this. Jews and Muslims are afraid of our militant approaches to evangelism. The cross to Jews and to Muslims is a symbol of war, not a symbol of peace. The Crusaders had a flag, and what was the main thing on it? It was a cross. So they still think about that. But what about Islam? Islam's not perfect, of course. <laughs> we have problems with that too, don't we? Islam, is what has, they have what they call a house of peace and a house of war. Those in the house of peace are Muslims, but those who are in the house of war are non-Muslims. And is, is, is Islam a religion of peace? Well, yes, if you are a Muslim and you choose to submit to Islam or to Islamic law, Sharia. Is Islam a religion of war? Yes. If you are not a Muslim and you refuse to submit, that's the way they see the world. Okay? It's not the way I see the world. That's the way they see the world. 
I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. To give you an idea of the house of war, there are over 100 verses in the Quran which basically declare that Muslims not only can, but actually should kill anyone who does not accept Allah and his messenger. Here's one verse from the Quran. Those who believe fight in the cause of Allah, and those who reject faith fight in the cause of evil, fight against the friends of Satan. So Muslims think we are the friends of Satan. Feeble indeed is the cunning of Satan. And there are other verses that I could, that I could um, quote for you. Well, here's a question. Was Osama bin Laden a good Muslim, or was he an extremist? Or the, the leaders of ISIS, are they extremists, or are they good Muslims? According to this verse from the Quran, Osama bin Laden was a good Muslim because he interpreted the, the Quran literally. Now listen carefully. If a Muslim is moderate who wants peace, then he's going against his holy book. On the other hand, there's not one war verse in the New Testament that says that we can war against non-Christians. If you, as a Christian, hate your enemy, then you're fighting against the law of love. For our Savior Jesus Christ said, you have, heard, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you want to be sons of your Father in heaven then one way is to love Muslims in general and Arabs in particular. Muslims call Christians and Jews their enemies. That's in the Quran, by the way, so I'm not making this up. By the way, Romans 13 teaches us what secular governments are ordained to do to protect us, not what the church or Christians are to do. Christianity calls you to die for Jesus. Islam calls Muslims to kill for Muhammad. However, let's just be clear about all this. Muslims are not our enemies. For our struggle, according to Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against Muslims, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Crusades should have taught us that people do not respond to the gospel after Christians have waged war against them. Muslims were sometimes conquered in battle, but they were not converted by fighting against Christians. You know, as I said before, confusion and struggle have continued for 1,400 years. It's not just our generation, by the way, that's had problem with dealing with Islam. 1,400 years of Christians and Muslims, and we're still perplexed about how to deal with Islam. The conflict we're in today is really nothing new. In the Middle Ages, the Western church powers feared Islam as a growing threat to Christianity. Islam had been attacking Christian Europe relentlessly for 300 years. They had completely wiped out the entire 
church in North Africa. It had complete control of Spain and most of the Middle East. By the, so the Byzantine, this is important, the Byzantine Emperor Alexis I sent an urgent message to Pope Urban II to come to the rescue of the Eastern Church. Okay? He had to ask the Pope because at that time the Pope had the political power as well as the religious power. In the beginning, it was no different from Winston Churchill, let's say, asking Franklin Roosevelt to declare war on Germany and come to the aid of Western Europe. But it became a scandal, well, it became a scandal that Jerusalem and the Christian holy places were in the hands of the Muslim Turks, whom they called Saracen infidels. The Holy Land had to be reclaimed for Christ. So religion and politics became confused and Christians dedicated themselves to battle against the enemies of Christianity rather than to love them. On the other side, you've probably heard this name, Salahdin or Saladin, as we say in English. The renowned leader of the Muslim armies during the First Crusade inspired people to men to battle declaring a jihad, what he called a struggle for spiritual truth. He demanded that every one of his soldiers become a soldier of God against the infidels. Does all this sound familiar? It just seems like history keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? Modern Christians look back on the pages of history and are astounded that the church justified warfare. Modern Muslims are still terrified, by the way, and listen to that again. Muslims are terrified, as I said, by the sign of the cross. When history is taught in modern-day Muslim classrooms, the main thing they study are the Crusades. They know everything. They know everybody. They know Richard, King Richard, the Lionhearted, and what he did in Jerusalem. They know all the players. That's what they study. Now back to Jonah. The time of Jonah's ministry to the ancient Iraqis in Nineveh is dated around 780 to 775 B.C. during the reign of King Jeroboam II in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And while Uzziah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And between the reigns of Shalmaneser II and Tiglath-Pilazar in Nineveh. These very people, the Assyrians, under the leadership of Salamizar V and Sargon II, laid siege to the capital of Samaria under the, uh, and completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them into exile in 723 B.C., only 50 years after, or 60 years after Jonah preached to Nineveh. Now perhaps Jonah, as a prophet, knew that the Ninevites would conquer the northern kingdom and burn Samaria, the capital, to the ground. Maybe that's why he wanted God to destroy them. If Jonah were a modern Jew living in Tel Aviv, as I said before, what would he say about the modern Ninevites, the Iraqis? Would Jonah be any more eager to go to Mosul today and preach the gospel? Would you? 
Do Muslims deserve to go to hell? For that matter, do I deserve to go to hell? Well, of course I do. But by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I know God and I am saved by his mercy. The increasing thing about jo- interesting thing about Jonah is that he did know God. Okay? He did know God. That's what's so amazing. That's why he tried to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is what we think is modern-day Spain. You see, he wanted to get as far across the Mediterranean, away from Israel, as he could. He wanted to see the ancient Iraqis massacred for the things they had done in his country, the very people of God. The Ninevites deserved God's judgment, didn't they? And listen to Jonah's own words. Listen very carefully to Jonah's words. But it pleased Jonah, or excuse me, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That's the difference between the God of the Bible and what you believe and the Muslim God of the Quran. Our God is a God of love, not a God of war. Do you know the same God that Jonah knew? Do you know how gracious and compassionate God is toward Muslims. That is the gospel. You're only here today because God doesn't judge you as your sins deserve. And we all know that if God judged us according to the law, we would perish, wouldn't we? Can you imagine Jonah going back to the northern kingdom of Israel and reporting to the believers? Here's a possible dialogue. The people of Israel, hey Jonah, did God destroy our enemies like you said they would? And Jonah says, well, not really. The people said, what? Jonah said, well, actually, they all repented from the king on down to the peasant, saying, "Um, well, God forgave them. What? God forgave them? Why would he spare our enemies? Jonah gave us the answer, didn't he? God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from disaster, or you might even say evil. Now, Francis of Assisi, I know I'm going a little long this morning, but let's try to bear with me for a minute or two more. Actually, it's going to be about 30. But um, <laughs> many of us know the quote by St. Francis of Assisi, He said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. If you've read anything about him, you know that St. Francis preached the gospel everywhere he went using words. He preached on the street corners. He preached everywhere. He preached in the forest. He preached to the animals. He was a little bit, well... (laughs) So what did he mean by that quote? Well, St. Francis lived during the time of the last crusade, 
and he was very upset with what was going on. So he boarded a crusader ship in, in uh, Italy bound for Egypt. Okay? And on the way, he preached to the, the soldiers, exhorting them not to fight against the Muslims. Can you imagine that? When he arrived in Egypt, he crossed enemy lines, was caught and beaten, and all the time demanding to see the, the, the sultan. His request was, was granted, and he preached the gospel to the, to the sultan in such a convincing way that, the, that the, the sultan was almost persuaded. Christian writers at that time say he did become a Christian. Uh, the Muslims say he didn't. But we do know that he did release 10,000 Christian prisoners along with St. Francis. Back in Italy, St. Francis commissioned the first missionaries to the Muslim world. He sent them to Marrakesh in Morocco. That's when he said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Why did he say that? He emphasized that with Muslims, they have to see your life. You have to show them with your good deeds what it is to be a Christian. You have to earn the right to preach the gospel to Muslims. And that's exactly where we are today. What does that mean for you as, as Muslims are taking over some parts of our country? I mean, I think there may be 100,000 Muslims in, in the um, metropolitan area of D.C., well, you need to lay aside your fears, trust Jesus, and invite Muslims into your home. Paul Martindale, a former missionary now working in the States, did an informal survey of foreign Muslims he has met. And for those who have lived in the States for a long time, he asked them, how many American homes have you been in? Their answer was, <laughs> nada, nothing, never. Okay, okay, this is how can Muslims know Jesus unless they hear, and how they, can they hear unless it's from you and from us? What was on God's heart at the time of Jonah toward the ancient Iraqis, and what is, what is on God's heart now toward the sons of Abraham, the, the Arabs? God responded to Jonah by saying, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah is the only book of the Bible that ends with a question. And I think we know the answer, don't we? <laughs> it's obvious. God's love for the nations in the Old Testament. If you think this is an isolated occurrence in the Old Testament about God's compassion to the nations, well, now listen to what God said to Ezekiel. In chapter 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live. And then in verse 32, in the same chapter, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God wants all of us to change our attitudes about Muslims, do a, a 180 in our spiritual lives. It doesn't matter that what the Quran says about war. It doesn't matter what, what Muslims have been taught. It matters who Jesus is 
And in order to change Jonah, God had had him spend three days in the belly of a great fish. What's it going to take for you? You have any, can we go over to the Chesapeake here and <laughs> throw you in or something? <laughs> What's it going to take for you to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger about your besetting sins and abounding in love? Because God, God abounds in love for you, and you don't, even when you don't love Him. He relents from sending calamity into your life, even though we deserve it. I've lived among Muslims. I know Muslims. I'm beginning to see them as God sees them. Please remember that there are 1.2, maybe 1.5 billion people on this planet who are Muslims, one out of five, one out of three in ten years. And most of them are just like you. Two or three uh, million Muslims, or maybe even four million now, live in the United States. And it's the fastest growing religion, supposedly, in America, 43,000 a year. You don't have to be a foreign missionary to meet Muslims. I mean, I think people have told me yesterday that they've met, they, I think just about everybody knows a Muslim. And they want to live peaceful lives. They want to go to work. They want to put their kids through school, live in safe neighborhoods, and mind their own business. Right? There are many people in the Muslim world like Cornelius, who, as the Word of God says in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, are devout, devout and God-fearing. They worship God in the only way they know how by going to the mosque. The Bible says Cornelius worshipped the one true God, but he wasn't saved until he met Jesus through the preaching of Peter. The Corneliuses of this world need to hear the good news from Christians who prove to them by their compassion and love that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. So as we finish, Jesus called us to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Big difference. Peacekeepers carry guns. We carry the Word of God. Here are some things you can do to be a peacemaker to Muslims. Pray. Ask God to examine your motives. Be a learner. Be a servant. Invite them to your home. Ask questions about their culture. They love to talk about their culture and their food. Be patient. Listen. Focus on Jesus. Don't get into theological arguments. Most likely you will lose the argument. Um, they know more about what they believe than sometimes we do. Don't be defensive. Jesus can take care of himself. <laughs> and meditate on the Sermon on the Mount. Meditate on the Sermon on the Mount. I began this message by asking you to imagine what it would be like if God asked a modern Messianic Jew to preach the gospel in Mosul, Iraq. When you encounter Muslims, are you going to run away, as Jonah did, or are you going to preach the gospel of love? As we close in prayer, my first question to you is, do you know, I said this before actually, do you know the same God that, know, that Jonah knew? If you don't, then now's the time to meet him the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 was, the time is fulfilled now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, today is the day to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. If you are a Christian, then I would ask you not to...
to run away from Muslims in the manner of Jonah, but to ask God to give you love for Muslims who are covered in thick darkness, according to Isaiah. They have no light. They need the light of the gospel of the gospel of Christ, of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, um, Lord, even as I preach this sermon, I, I realize how often I neglect speaking to, my, to people that I know even about the gospel, how, Lord, I read, watch the news and become angry. Lord God, help us to be controlled by your spirit and led by your word. Lord, may we believe your word and we may we put it to practice. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.